Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast so I can keep affording half-decent music for my episodes. Support me and get a book of your choice, What's Not to Love?, This episode talks about, today, about how America got into a nasty war in Southeast Asia. So my recommendation today is David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, a journalist's recounting of how America became involved in the Vietnam War. It is one of the classic Vietnam histories. It has some of the best historical prose I've ever read, and it's free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1898. The place, Manila, the capital of the Philippines. The United States wins the Spanish-American War and finds itself in control of the Philippines. Will America stay true to its values and give the Filipinos their independence, or succumb to the temptation of empire? I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and today kicks off the first series of Season 2. This is Episode 37, The Philippine War Part 1, American Empire. This episode is going to begin the longer story of America's most forgotten conflict, in my opinion. The Philippine-American War, 1899-1902, to or 1913, depends on how you look at it. This is a story that exists on the fringes of American historical memory, in bits and pieces here and there, but never as a whole. And for the next few weeks, I am putting it front and center. Let's get into one of the most pivotal pieces of American military history that you likely know nothing about. If you want to begin with a little more background, or if you need a very basic introduction to when and where this is, or what my themes are, or what books I used for this series, that is okay. I got you covered. I have released a short introduction, Introduction to the Philippine-American War, on my feed. You don't have to listen to that, it's not essential. But if you want to know how the series is going to be structured, need some basic background and timeline stuff, or want to know about my research and my themes, it is all there. There are also maps, multiple maps, on my website and social media. We'll be tackling a lot of unfamiliar geography in the Philippines. I'm going to mention a lot of places and islands and stuff that you probably don't know where they are. So those are going to be really useful. So I encourage you to check out both the introduction episode and the maps. Did you listen? Did you look? Good. Awesome. Hope it was helpful. And if not, cool. Let's get on with it. The latest tabloids have reported this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources and some computer-generated maps, as I'm doing for my new series, will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are all on me. The Philippine War has a very complex historiography. There is still an ongoing historical debate to much of this story, but everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. 
Americans have always believed that we are special. That there is something about our nation that sets us apart. The shining city on the hill spreading the light to the world. We have an idealistic, almost dreamlike image of ourselves. An American ideology of freedom and liberty and self-reliance and hard work and prosperity. Our image of ourselves, embodied by characters like Superman or Captain America. We have this image of what America is supposed to mean. But America has not always lived up to this image. We have fallen short. Most people would say we always have fallen short. And every time we fall short, that image somehow glows brighter. If anything makes America unique among nations, it's that we think we're unique. We have set ourselves an unachievable goal, an image of perfection, and reality will always fall short. This contrast between image and reality is one of the defining features of American history, and it is the central theme of the Philippine War series. We have astonishingly high ideals, but are deeply insecure in our failure to meet them. It's it's hypocrisy. And when Americans find ourselves being hypocritical, when the image doesn't match reality, well, we lie to ourselves, or we forget, or we ignore, or we find some rationalization to claim that what we're doing is cool. Yeah, we conquered the West and killed the Indians, but we were spreading civilization. Uh, Slavery was bad, but we got rid of it, so everything's okay now. No more racism, right? We did some bad stuff in Vietnam, but we were fighting communism and we had to do it, don't you see? We've gotten very, very good, as Americans, at lying to ourselves. This series, starting today, takes a look at one of those times when we lied to ourselves. This is America's emergence as a world power, the Spanish-American War of 1898 and everything that followed it, and most importantly, the subject of this series, the Philippine-American War. I'm not going to delve too much into the Spanish-American War in this series, in this episode. I'm going to touch on high points, but I'm not going to give it the full treatment. That's not the point. My point is to get us to the Philippine War. And few events in our history exemplify this tug-of-war between American image and American reality like the Philippine-American War. Today is all about laying the foundations, the groundwork for that conflict, How the United States, a country committed to democracy and freedom, a country that had broken free of an empire, took democracy and freedom from someone else and came to seek an empire of its own. Now, my image, my my message in this series is not America bad. America is not special in conquering land and building an empire. Pretty much every other country in history has done this stuff or worse, sometimes much worse. But America is special in that we pretend we don't. We still cherish that image, that Captain America vision of ourselves, even as we do things in reality that refute it. Human beings have an infinite capacity for lying to themselves, including, and perhaps especially, the folks who wear red, white, and blue. Today, we will begin the story of the Philippine-American War. Today's episode will end on the cusp of the war with the first shots being fired, but before we get there... We have to talk about America in the 1890s and contemporary issues of image and reality, as well as a geography and brief history lesson on the islands that we call the Philippines. We will touch on the Spanish-American War, which isn't the subject of this series, but is a necessary preliminary. And then we will show how fallout from that war, broken promises, failed dreams, and vainglorious ambitions led the United States to war in the Philippines. And of course, how the mismatch between image and reality led America down the road to empire. And to fit the spirit of the age, today's music will consist of Military Marches of John Philip Sousa.
all public domain recordings. Souza was writing, publishing, and performing this music throughout the events I'm describing today, so this is period-appropriate music, the soundtrack to American Empire. Plus, they're kind of catchy. And I will tell you why all this matters at the end of the story. Today is part one, and in part four, I will tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic journey to the Gilded Age, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, rake some leaves, grill some burgers, do the thing you need to do. So pick up a tiny American flag, go to the parade, wave that flag like crazy, and yell, Remember the Maine, as loud as you can. America's going to war, and war is awesome. Get bully, get jingo, because we're going on campaign. The United States of America in the 1890s was at the end of one era and the beginning of another. And you know I love my in-between periods of history. America was transitioning from the age of the Civil War and the Wild West to its 20th century era, its debut as a world power. The story of the Philippine War is the story of this transformation. And what's weird is that people knew they were living through a turning point, realized the importance of what was happening to their country. Because in the 1890s, the years before the Philippine War, the United States was in crisis. America had had two defining ideals for most of its history, ideals which created an American image. The first ideal was the frontier. America had always had a western frontier, a vast wilderness to be conquered, a challenge to be overcome. This was linked to the second American ideal, the independent, hard-working, self-made man, the farmer or craftsman or entrepreneur earning an honest living for his wife and children. He was also, implicitly, white and Protestant. The American dream in this period only applied to certain Americans. But even that dream, that image, no longer matched reality. America didn't look like the fairy tales anymore, if it ever had. It hadn't. And this mismatch between image and reality, when Americans worried they were losing what had made them special, made the 1890s a crisis of American identity. It began in 1890, when the United States Census declared the frontier closed. The final piece of allegedly unclaimed land, the former Indian Territory, had been opened to settlers in 1889. Callback. 1890 also saw the last major action of the Indian Wars, in the infamous massacre at Wounded Knee. But to most Americans, Wounded Knee just confirmed the wild Indian was no more. From sea to shining sea, the United States had been fenced off, the borders were drawn, the wilderness was tamed, the West was legally no longer wild. The American frontier had vanished. And as the frontier vanished, so did the self-made man. This was the Gilded Age, the golden age of unrestrained capitalism. On paper, America's economy was roaring, but the profits only went one way. The rich were very rich, industrial and financial titans like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and Jay Gould, often called the robber barons. 
The poor were very poor, living in filthy tenements and working for pennies in unsafe factories and mills and mines. The struggle between the owners and the workers, between capital and labor, boiled over into violence. Labor unions pushed for workers' rights via strikes, like the 1892 homestead strike at Carnegie Steel Mill in Pittsburgh. In the struggle of labor versus capital, capital usually won. And it got worse. The Panic of 1893 devastated the economy, the largest depression in American history to that point, until the 1930s. This was what Americans called the Great Depression. Millions were thrown into poverty, and few had it worse than the American farmers, the ideal American image rendered penniless by the whims of the market. The American dream of the self-made man seemed to be disappearing, along with the frontier. And lots of groups who hadn't been included in the original American dream wanted in. They wanted the American reality to match the image they had been promised, the ideals of liberty and equality and prosperity that people still claim to believe. African Americans, black Americans, had dreams. Dreams which were crushed in 1896 when the Supreme Court legalized Jim Crow in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson. And Jim Crow was enforced by a wave of horrific lynchings and mass violence unequaled in American history. This violence was actually really, really bad and people forget all about it. Black educator Booker T. Washington and his rival W.E.B. Du Bois, future founder of the NAACP, led black America in their struggle against segregation and racism and Jim Crow in pursuit of their American dream. American women had dreams. Early feminists like Susan B. Anthony and Ida B. Wells promoted women's rights, including suffrage, the right to vote. Some suffragists dedicated themselves to social work. Jane Addams's founding of Chicago's Hull House in 1889 was designed to relieve the poverty of the urban masses. The early feminists wanted women, and more, the lower classes, to be included in the American dream. And new Americans had dreams. Hordes of immigrants came to Ellis Island in New York Harbor, and unlike previous arrivals, most of this new wave were Eastern and Southern Europeans. Italian, Greek, Polish, Russian, overwhelmingly non-Protestant, Catholics, some were even Jewish. The immigrants wanted the American dream, but their foreign tongues and darker skin seemed to threaten America's white Protestant tradition. And their food smelled funny. And they were taking our jobs. So not only did the American image no longer match reality, people disagreed on what that image was. America was in chaos, exploding with frustrated energy and economic meltdown. And all this fed into the presidential election of 1896. Big thing to know right now before I go any farther. The political parties of the 1890s were unrecognizable from their current forms. Like the issues and policies don't remotely match up with modern American politics. When I say Democrat or Republican, this is not Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Uh, the Republican coalition contained the capitalists and the professional classes, but also black Americans, feminists, and reformers. The Democratic coalition included Catholic immigrants, farmers, most of the Midwest, and the white Jim Crow South. They competed, both parties competed for the industrial working class, completely different from the 21st century. For the election of 1896, the Democrats nominated 36-year-old William Jennings Bryan, a charismatic Midwestern populist. Bryan claimed to stand for the little man, the small farmers and industrial workers crushed under the heel of capital. 
His campaign revolved around the coinage of silver, an inflationary measure to relieve farmers' debts and break the power of the big banks, instead of America's deflationary gold standard. Yeah, okay, silver versus gold. People got real whipped up about monetary policy in the 1890s, but it was an age of economic crisis, understandable. The Republicans nominated William McKinley, a cheerful Ohio politician with a devout Christian faith and a compassionate character. McKinley was widely seen as an empty suit, a puppet for his political backers, though this wasn't quite true. But he was the candidate of law and order, good government, stability, reform, and the gold standard. The return to normality versus Bryan's passionate revolution. Both parties claimed to represent the true America, the image they all claimed to believe in. When McKinley won the election of 1896, he won. Republicans saw it as a victory for order and common sense, while the Democrats saw it as a defeat for the common man. Either way, President William McKinley and the Republicans were in office, on the verge of America's global age. So that was where America was on the eve of the Philippine War. And in this age of turmoil, many Americans looked to the past for answers about the future. They looked to historians. Frederick Jackson Turner was one of those historians. In 1893, he wrote an essay called The Significance of the Frontier in American History, what has been called the Frontier Thesis. This said that the frontier defined the American character, had been the reason Americans were American, with their democracy and individualism and hard work and self-reliance. The frontier had created the American image. Turner said, And now, four centuries from the discovery of America, at the end of a hundred years of life under the Constitution, the frontier has gone, and with its going has closed the first period of American history. Turner was saying, it's the end of an age, the end of the frontier. But he also implied that American energy, American ideals, weren't done with the world yet. They had to move on. They needed a new frontier. Where was that going to be? Turner asked the question, and another historian had the answer. This was a professor at the U.S. Naval War College, Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan. In 1890, the same year the frontier closed, Mahan published a book that shook the world. The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, essentially the equivalent of Sun Tzu or Clausewitz, but for naval strategy. The book about sea power, still on reading lists at military academies all over the world. Mahan's message was, every great empire is a sea power. He wrote, Whoever rules the waves, rules the world. Mahan said for its own survival and for its greatness, America required a strong modern navy and modern warships required overseas bases for coaling and repair. Mahan said, This is America's destiny. This is our new frontier. Overseas expansion. Build a strong navy. Conquer bases. Become a global power. Find a new frontier on the waves. Whether they will or not, Americans must now begin to look outward. The growing production of the country demands it. The influence of sea power was an international phenomenon, especially in two other up-and-coming empires, Germany and Japan, who used it to justify their own naval expansion. It was one of Kaiser Wilhelm II's favorite books, and it became a textbook in Japan's Naval Academy. But in his native United States, Mayan was treated like a prophet. 
The U.S. Navy had been neglected ever since the Civil War, a pathetic bo bunch of leaky boats that could barely fight a yacht club. But Mayan's ideas lit a fire. Soon a glistening armada of steel battleships waved the American flag, the culmination of his dream of sea power. Military expansion encouraged a new phenomenon called jingoism. This was rah-rah, brass band, flag-waving patriotism that would make Toby Keith proud. The marches of John Philip Sousa were the perfect soundtrack for this yee-haw nationalist attitude. In 1896, the same year as McKinley vs. Bryan, the former Marine Corps band director, Sousa, published his best-known work, Stars and Stripes Forever. Many of America's other great cultural touchstones appeared in this age, like the song America the Beautiful, stuff like baseball and Coca-Cola and bicycles, all of which were usually covered in red, white, and blue. This was desperate pride in a dream that seemed to be vanishing, an attempt to reassert what it meant to be American, to get the magic back. And when it came to this moment, no one seemed to exemplify it more. No one believed in that shining American image more than Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt is one of the most important characters in our story. He won't always be on center stage, but he is a major player throughout this series. Because Teddy seemed to be the personification of that American image. Many Europeans who met him saw him as the American, the distillation of all America's strengths and weaknesses. And in a lot of cases throughout this series, I'll be using him as a sort of stand-in for the American attitudes of the time, because he reflected and personified them so well. You already see him in your head. Iconic, larger than life, bursting with positive energy. Teddy Roosevelt with his big teeth and big glasses and bushy mustache, spontaneous and cheerful, probably saying something like bully or jingo or hell yeah, America. He was always on the go, always doing something. The more challenging and dangerous, the better. Climbing and swimming, biking and hiking, boxing and lifting, and his favorite of all, hunting. Teddy Roosevelt loved all creatures, great and small, especially when he could shoot them in the face. He was powered by some kind of motor that never ran at less than 200%. He honestly sounds exhausting. In 1899, at the height of the Philippine War, Roosevelt delivered a speech called The Strenuous Life, which summed up his philosophy. I wish to preach the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil, and who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. But Teddy wasn't just a jock, he was an intellectual. Much like his hero, Alexander Hamilton, he wrote like he was running out of time, and he could read several books a day. Teddy was a big fan of both Frederick Jackson Turner and Alfred Thayer Mahon. He was obsessed with the West, he had run a ranch for a couple of years, and he was obsessed with naval power. He even wrote his own naval history of the War of 1812. Roosevelt wrote to Mahon about his book. He said, I can say with perfect sincerity that I think it very much the clearest and most instructive general work of the kind. I wish that the whole book could be placed where it could be read by the Navy's foes, especially in Congress. And Roosevelt extended his personal philosophy to politics. 
He believed that America had to keep challenging itself, find new ambitions and goals. And this required a strong military and assertive foreign policy. Roosevelt later became famous for the phrase, uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. Like many Americans, Roosevelt saw his country as growing weak and flabby and decadent, in need of rejuvenation. He had conquered his childhood illness by taking on the strenuous life, and he believed America should do so as well. And this meant war. Theodore Roosevelt, his darker side, thought war was freaking awesome, glorious and righteous and thrilling. Physical bravery was the ultimate virtue, and war was its ultimate test. Teddy embraced a romantic vision of war, exemplified by his childhood Civil War heroes. He really thought of it like another fun challenge, another mountain to climb. In one of his more famous quotes, Roosevelt said, All the great masterful races have been fighting races. No triumph of peace is quite so great as the supreme triumph of war. And he wasn't no armchair soldier. If there was a war, Teddy was going to go. Teddy Roosevelt was one of a group of young Republican politicians who would later be called the Progressives, including people like Elihu Root, Henry Cabot Lodge, and Albert Beveridge. The Progressives were reformers who wanted to fix the American reality to conform to the American image. They had a lot of ideas that revolved around big government solutions like anti-corruption and anti-monopoly laws, or workers' rights or labor laws like the banning of child labor, public health, environmental protection. And Teddy Roosevelt would be a powerful force for all those ideals when he became president. But the progressives, as we will see, also supported overseas expansion and military might. The progressives were a powerful force within the McKinley administration. Though McKinley himself wasn't too on board with the whole military thing, he didn't want any of that jingo nonsense in his administration, so he said. But Teddy Roosevelt, with his obsession for sea power, had become Assistant Secretary of the Navy. His superior was Naval Secretary John D. Long, an older man who was often on leave due to his health problems. And whenever Long was out of the office, Roosevelt grabbed the reins with his teeth and did all sorts of crazy things. Dad's gone, I'm in charge now, and I have lots of awesome ideas. The United States was humming with positive energy, ready for the next stage of its history. Just like its embodiment, Theodore Roosevelt, plowing through paperwork at the Navy Department like he was making his coffee with monster energy drinks. All it would take for America to boil over was for something crazy to happen. So what are the chances that something crazy happened? Empires rise and fall. As new empires, German, Japanese, and American, rose in the 1890s, an old empire was falling. The Spanish Empire was a shadow of its former self. It still held the Caribbean islands of Cuba and Puerto Rico, a couple of Pacific outposts like Guam, and the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Hint, hint. Spain held on to these remnants of an empire like a life preserver, the only reminders that it had once been a great power. Like America, they were clinging to an image that seemed more distant every day. But the reality was that most of this empire badly wanted independence, especially Cuba. A Cuban rebellion broke out in 1895, one in a long series of Cuban rebellions, but this one was much stronger than the last few. Americans identified with the Cuban struggle for independence. It reminded them of their own revolution. Lots of American sympathy for the Cubans struggling against the evil Spanish tyrant. It didn't hurt that the Cubans had great PR. 
and America's most famous newspapers, William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal and Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, openly supported the cause, pumping pro-Cuban propaganda into American veins. This was the golden age of yellow journalism, when tabloids and inaccurate headlines and fake news were all the rage. It didn't hurt that a lot of the propaganda was true. All the best propaganda is. The Spanish army was losing ground to the rebellion, so they appointed a new commander, the ruthless General Valeriano Whaler, nicknamed The Butcher. Sounds like a great guest for a kid's birthday party. The Butcher. Whaler's strategies were brutal but effective. He went full scorched earth on the rebels, destroying villages and ruining crops, and basically burning out the countryside to suppress them. His most infamous tactic was the Reconcentrado system, the use of what Whaler called reconcentration camps to separate the population from the guerrillas. But poor conditions and rampant disease killed thousands of civilians due to the Reconcentrado policy. Whaler defended it as the only way to win the war, justifying his tactics based on those of his hero, American General William Tecumseh Sherman. But the atrocities invoked howls of outrage from Americans, who saw the war as one big crime against humanity and demanded intervention. President McKinley was under pressure to do something, anything, to stop the horrible Spanish villains. Now, McKinley was anything but a warmonger. He was a Civil War veteran, the last Civil War veteran to occupy the White House. McKinley had fought at the Battle of Antietam, and he talked all the time about seeing the piled bodies and just all this carnage and how he hated it. Unlike many Americans, McKinley knew what war was, but he was adrift on the tides of public opinion, and he'd never been a very strong personality. Theodore Roosevelt claimed about McKinley that he has no more backbone than a chocolate eclair. So McKinley bowed to public pressure and decided on a show of force. He decided to do some sword rattling, so he sent one of America's shiny new battleships, the USS Maine, to Havana Harbor. It is hard not to see the parallels in two surprise explosions, two uh, literal and political explosions that changed the world forever. September 11, 2001 welcomed America into the 21st century, and February 15, 1898 welcomed America into the 20th. On that day, the USS Maine suffered a dramatic explosion, killing 268 American sailors. And just like 9-11, this marked the end of one age and the beginning of another. Now, modern research says that the Maine explosion was probably an accident, probably poor handling of ammunition. This kind of thing happened a lot, to be honest. But it didn't matter, because Americans wanted to believe the Spanish were responsible, and the newspapers gave them what they wanted. Just like the modern day, fake news played right into American anxieties. The United States erupted into patriotic outrage and calls for war. The anxiety, the jingoism, the need to believe in America again melded into overwhelming support for war with Spain. The slogan became famous, you know, Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. Honestly, don't think America would see this level of nationalist belligerence again until 2001. People would remember those months after the USS Maine explosion as the time when everyone put aside their differences. They were all just Americans. The time when they all came together. It was one of the few times the image seemed to line up with the reality. And Theodore Roosevelt could not be happier. He was bouncing up and down in his seat. 
Naval Secretary Long was out of the office again after saying, now Theodore, don't go doing anything crazy while I'm gone. And Theodore Roosevelt was like, sure boss, you can count on me. Long was out the door for about five seconds before Teddy was hammering away at the telegraph, sending out messages to the U.S. Navy's squadrons to make ready for war. One of these messages started the chain of events that would lead to the Philippine-American War. Commodore George Dewey commanded the U.S. Navy's Asiatic Squadron, a small fleet of heavy cruisers stationed at the port of Nagasaki, Japan. With Long out of the office, Roosevelt cabled Dewey to sail for Hong Kong. In the event of war, he wasn't even supposed to wait for any further instructions. He was to head southeast towards the Spanish-ruled Philippine Islands, towards Manila Bay. When McKinley and Long found out what Roosevelt had done, they'd shoot him out, but they didn't cancel the orders. Dewey's ship sat on the Chinese coast like a cat ready to pounce. The only thing that stopped America from plunging immediately into war was the hesitation of William McKinley. He was accused of cowardice, incompetence, and wimpiness. It seemed like everyone in America wanted war except the last president of the Civil War generation. He resisted as long as he could, but public opinion, once again, forced his hand. On April 21, 1898, the United States declared war on Spain. The Spanish-American War had officially begun. Within days, Teddy Roosevelt resigned his Navy Department post to raise a volunteer regiment, the Rough Riders. He was going to war, and he felt like a kid at Christmas. But on the other side of the world, his standing orders went into effect. Commodore George Dewey and the U.S. Asiatic Squadron were steaming south. Destination, the Philippines. Roosevelt's orders set in motion a chain of events that would lead to one of America's bitterest conflicts. In 10 months, the Philippine-American War would begin. So we've gotten a look at what America was up to in the 1890s, but now we have to push pause, rewind 300 years, and talk about the Philippines. First, a quick geography lesson. And guys, don't worry, I have maps. Maps I made just for you on my website and social media. I strongly recommend you use them because we're going to be all over the Philippines for this series. This is going to be our main location and you might get lost. The Philippines contain more than 7,000 islands in a thousand-mile-wide archipelago as long as the U.S. Pacific coast. The islands are roughly equal to Arizona in total land area. This is a large country. The islands are grouped into three regions. In the north, Luzon, the largest island about the size of Virginia. Luzon is the economic and political center of the Philippines, containing 50% of the population in the capital city of Manila. The Luzon region also contains smaller neighboring islands. In the middle are the Visayas, the central islands, containing many small but a few large islands, including Pane, Negros, Cebu, Leyte, and Samar. In the south are the large island of Mindanao and its neighboring island chains, including the Sulu Archipelago trailing away down to Borneo. 
The Philippines are what is called megadiverse, full of unique plant and animal life. They are on the Pacific Rim with active volcanoes and frequent earthquakes. The climate is capital T tropical, usually hot and very humid, with a heavy monsoon season in the summer and typhoons in early autumn. You have swamps and rainforests and mountains and floodplains. It is a jungle out there. And the Philippines' megadiversity applies to its people. There's a phrase I'm going to use here throughout this series. Diversity is natural. Uniformity is weird. When things are diverse, that's normal. When they're all the same, that's unusual. The Filipinos have never possessed a common language or common ethnicity or even a common religion. The Philippines' largest ethnic group are the Tagalogs, about 25% of the country, mainly in central and southern Luzon. Manila is a mostly Tagalog city, and they are historically the most influential ethnic group. But then you have the peoples of the Visayas, like the Cebuano of Cebu and the Waray of Samar. You have the Ilocano and other groups in northern Luzon, the Hilagenon of southwest Mindanao, and those are only a few of the big ones. There is a small but prominent ethnic Chinese minority, mostly within Manila's business and financial circles, dating from the 1500s. There are an additional 142 unique indigenous tribes. Finally, there are the Philippine Muslims, who would later be called the Moros, on Mindanao and the Sulu Archipelago. All of these groups come from a blending of Polynesian, Austronesian, Taiwanese, Chinese, Papuan, Indian, Japanese, and Arab that all came to the Philippines at some point or another. Yeah, guys, it's nuts. And this is surface level. We're only, we're only scratching the surface of this craziness. Diversity is natural. Uniformity is weird. And the ethnic and religious divides of the Philippines played an enormous role in the Philippine War. I'm not telling you this for my health. A central part of Philippine history is its natural diversity, its reality, conflicting with the artificial, imposed uniformity, the image, usually imposed from the outside, first by the Spanish, then by the Americans, even the name of their freaking country. The first Europeans arrived in the islands by accident in 1521. Three Spanish ships commanded by the explorer Ferdinand Magellan, who got in over his head immediately. After landing on Cebu in the Visayas, Magellan got involved with a local tribal dispute, which resulted in him getting hacked to pieces on the beach as all his men watched from the ships. He asked, you want a piece of me? And Chief Lapu-Lapu said, I will take as many pieces as I can get. So on the whole, not a successful first visit. The next Spanish visit in the 1530s didn't stick around, but they did name the islands after Crown Prince Philip of Spain. The Philippines are called that. The only reason they're grouped together at all was an outside imposition based on some Habsburg ruler who never saw them. Uniformity is weird. Uniformity is artificial. In the 1560s, King Philip II of Spain decided to conquer the islands that bore his name. The conquistador Miguel López de Legazpi arrived in 1565, defeated the tribes, and founded the city of Manila in 1571. The conquest was fairly easy. After all, they were a bunch of widely separated peoples whose main weapons were bows and arrows and long machete-like knives called bolos, which weren't very effective against steel armor and muskets and cannons. The Spanish would rule the Philippines for over 300 years. But here's the thing. Spanish authority was wide, but not very deep. Their rule was centered on the main island of Luzon and the capital of Manila. 
They controlled major towns on most of the other islands, but the countryside was basically untouched. The Spanish government never really controlled Mindanao and Sulu, where the Philippine Muslims lived. The Spanish named these people, referred to these people by the name they used for Muslims back home, which they've been fighting for centuries. They called them Moors, or Moros. The Moros were a constant pain in the Spanish neck, just as they have been for every ruler of the Philippines. We'll see a lot more of the Moros in the last episode of this series. And the Spanish never really colonized or developed the Philippines like they did Mexico or Peru. Very little Spanish immigration to the Philippines. They were only really interested in two things. Number one, Manila was Spain's main trade port with China, where Chinese porcelain and silk could be traded for Spanish gold, then shipped across the Pacific to Mexico and thence to Spain. The yearly Manila Galleon was the only thing that made the Philippines profitable. And number two, there were a lot of folks out here who needed some Jesus. The Catholic Church is the main legacy of Spain's rule of the Philippines. And this is a big legacy. For most Filipinos during this time period, the local priest was the only Spanish authority figure they ever saw. The Catholic Church ruled the Philippines. They performed all the functions of a state. The local friar collected taxes, kept records, managed public health and public works, ran the police and the military and the courts. The Catholic friars were the absolute rulers of their sections of the Philippines, most of the Philippines. And the Philippines' conversion to Catholicism was successful. Outside of Moro land, those parts remain Muslim today. The priests adopted a lot of local traditions and melded them with Catholic religious practices. This is what's called syncretism. Local priests might baptize babies with pig's blood rather than holy water, or incorporate local incantations into the mass, or tolerate charms and curses and talismans that carried over from the old local religions. Many Filipino Christians to this day carry talismans that date back to pre-Christian traditions. This wasn't quite by the Catholic rulebook, but it worked. The Philippines became the most Christianized country in East Asia. But wild as it seems, in the 300 years of Spanish rule, most Filipinos never learned Spanish. Diversity is natural, and uniformity of language was never imposed. There was no education system. The Filipinos still spoke their local languages. They spoke Tagalog, Ilocano, Visayan, Moro. Besides Spanish authority, the only thing that unified most of the Philippines was Catholicism, except for the Moros, like I keep pointing out. The Spanish never really unified the Philippines culturally and linguistically. They never really placed that framework of a unified nation onto the colonies they ruled. The result was that when the Americans arrived, they found a crazy array of languages, traditions, and customs, but no real unifying identity. That's going to be really important. That's one of the key factors in this war. But the Philippines didn't take Spanish rule lying down. There were constant local revolts, and these rebellions almost always took on a religious overtone. The Filipinos cloaked their local rebellions in their new Catholic faith, sometimes believing that angels or saints gave them divine power. Most rebellions invoked the name of a patron saint, usually Santa Maria, Saint Mary. Belief in spiritual liberation, sainthood, sacrifice, and resurrection are powerful cultural currents in Philippine history. But until the 19th century, the Philippines were cut off from the outside world, under the control of the Catholic Church with all trade controlled by the Spanish crown. Their economic and political growth were forcibly stagnated by the dead hand of church and crown, 
until the modern world finally came in. The Spanish Empire, like I mentioned, was in pretty bad shape in the 19th century. The Latin American Wars of Independence cost them the most prosperous colonies, and also killed the Manila Galleon trade, so the Spanish really needed to make the Philippines lucrative. They opened the islands to foreign trade and investment. Soon entrepreneurs from Europe and Asia were flooding into the islands. The Chinese minority in Manila became rich from running the East Asian trade, and cash crops began to replace the traditional rice-based agriculture. Tobacco, sugar, and hemp turned central Luzon and the middle Visayas into prosperous plantations owned by elite wealthy landlords, many of which were not Spanish, but Filipino now. And opening the Philippines to the outside world meant new ideas. As a Filipino wealthy elite emerged, they started to chafe under Spanish rule. The Philippines' race-based class hierarchy was under attack. Spain had a pretty set hierarchy in all its colonies. White people born in Spain, the Peninsulares, were on top. White people born in the Philippines, the Criollos or Creoles, were below them. Mixed-race Filipinos, or Mestizos, below them. And full Filipinos at the bottom. Figuring out all these Spanish colonial racial categories is a exercise in futility. It's like, a, it's like racist trigonometry, basically. <laughs> but in the 19th century, a number of mestizos became educated and wealthy, and they wanted some say in their government. They became conscious of something like a very early stirring of Filipino nationalism, a collective Filipino identity. Now, this wasn't like a light switch flipped and everyone suddenly realized that they were Filipinos. The fact that this didn't happen is essential to understanding the Philippine War. The idea of a Filipino identity had to be created. Diversity is natural, uniformity is weird. Filipino nationalism was an idea limited to the rich kids. These were younger guys whose parents had the wealth to send them to school in Spain or elsewhere in Europe, and they got exposed to things like democracy, human rights, liberalism, nationalism, dangerous ideas. And these guys started writing and sharing ideas back and forth with each other. These kids are your Filipino founding fathers, the equivalent of John Adams and Patrick Henry and so forth. In Philippine history, these guys are called the Ilustrados, the learned or enlightened ones, the woke college kids, if you will. They were rich, they were educated, and most of them, this is important, most of them were mixed-race Tagalogs and Chinese from central and southern Luzon. These revolutionary idealists were a young, wealthy minority from a certain racial group within the Philippines. These are important names in Filipino history. Guys like Graciano Lopez Jaina, Marcelo del Pilar, Antonio Luna, Apolinario Mabini, and most of all, Jose Rizal. The Ilustrados started what was called the Propaganda Movement, a campaign to promote political reform in the Philippines. They wanted things like representation, Spanish citizenship, civil rights, and most of all, an end to the power of the friars, the priests. The Ilustrados, like the American Founding Fathers, didn't want independence at first. They just wanted to be equal. You know, no taxation without representation, stuff like that. The most famous ilustrado was Jose Rizal. He is the number one Filipino patriotic hero. In 1887, Rizal wrote his great novel, often considered the Filipino national epic. 
Noli me tangere, which translates as touch me not or don't tread on me, exposed the corruption of the priests and the cancer that resolved Saul blighting Filipino society. Rizal was the great prophet of Filipino nationalism. You can think of him as like Thomas Paine from the American Revolution, the guy who sums up in writing what everyone was thinking. But reform in the Philippines was a non-starter because the Catholic clergy opposed any changes that might diminish their rule. If the Spanish had managed to push through the Ilustrados moderate reforms, a revolution may have been averted. Instead, they doubled down. Jose Rizal was arrested and exiled to Mindanao in 1892. The Spanish authorities burned books, destroyed presses, arrested and sometimes executed troublemakers. But revolutionary ideas began to trickle down into the lower classes. One of these was Andres Bonifacio, basically a Manila street merchant. He was one of the leaders of the Katipunan, a secret revolutionary society which set up cells and networks all over central and southern Luzon. Unlike the elite Ilustrados, the Katipunan came from different economic groups within Filipino society. They weren't the rich elite kids, they were from the lower classes and middle classes as well. And economic conditions helped. The global economic crisis that America called the Panic of 1893 hit the Philippines as well. The price of rice skyrocketed, and all those cash crops that were taking up the rice fields now couldn't feed the people. Many areas were on the verge of starvation. Local uprisings of the traditional type, uprisings that had nothing to do with the Ilustrados or the Katipunan, the Catholic mystical uprisings, began to flare up across northern Luzon and the Visayas Islands. The Spanish authorities knew something was up. They started to hunt for this hidden revolutionary organization they'd been hearing so much about. In August 1896, the Spanish discovered the Katipunan and started rounding people up. Bonifacio decided that it was now or never. On August 28, 1896, in what was called the Cry of Balintawak, Andres Bonifacio proclaimed a national Philippine uprising the Philippine Revolution had officially begun. I'll remind you, as this was happening, August 1896, the McKinley vs. Bryan election was in full swing over in the United States. We're close to bringing these timelines together. The Philippine Revolution began badly. The Katipunan was basically a rabble with few weapons, no organization, and disunified leadership. Most of the Ilustrados hadn't even been on board, they believed the Philippines weren't ready for a revolution yet, and the major leaders were already fighting amongst themselves. The revolution looked like it was going to be a bust. Then the Spanish had to go and do something dumb. Jose Rizal had nothing to do with the Catapunan. When Bonifacio asked him to join, he had turned him down. He didn't think the time was right, that the Filipinos needed to, time to come together as a nation before their revolution, that the Filipinos weren't unified yet. He was right. But Rizal was a troublemaker, and that was enough for the Spanish. Rizal was arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. He was executed on December 30, 1896, his last words being those of Jesus on the cross, Consumatum est. It is finished. In his jail cell, Rizal left a final poem, his final testament to the Filipino nation. Farewell, land that I love, beloved of the sun, pearl of the Orient Sea, our Eden lost. I go where there are no slaves, where no tyrants reign, where faith does not slay, where God is most high. 
The execution of Rizal poured gasoline on the fire of the Philippine Revolution. He was immortalized as a Christ-like figure, a powerful symbol for the Catholic faithful. And all that religious symbolism to his death didn't hurt either. His death convinced many Filipino leaders who had been on the fence to back the revolution, including most of the Ilustrados. But not just them. Lots of local, regional elites were also eager to overthrow the Spanish yoke and take power from the priests. They saw their chance and took it. And one of those local leaders was Emilio Aguinaldo. Emilio Aguinaldo y Fami, often mispronounced as Emilio Aguinaldo, that's the American pronunciation, it's Emilio Aguinaldo, would be the face of Filipino resistance to both the Spanish and the Americans. He is one of the most important people in this story, like two or three main characters. Emilio Aguinaldo was born in 1869 in Cavite province, southwest of Manila, to a Chinese mestizo family, mixed Chinese and Tagalog ancestry. He was mayor of Cavite town, a prosperous landowner with a sugar mill, cattle ranch, and plantation, part of that rich economic elite that had started to think in terms of a Filipino nationalism. He was not an ilustrado, he was not one of the enlightened kids, but he was an early member of the Katipunan and got many of the local Cavite elite on his side. Aguinaldo wasn't a big fan of the premature revolution, but when it happened, he jumped in with both feet. Aguinaldo's uprising in Cavite ended up being one of the only successful fronts in the Philippine Revolution. His guerrillas were poorly armed with bolos and knives and captured rifles, but they used the ravines and swamps to their advantage and defeated several Spanish attacks. Aguinaldo proved to be a decent tactician. He won battles like the Battle of Imus, the Battle of Benacayan, the Battle of Zapote Bridge. Soon Cavite was the hotbed of Filipino resistance. All this placed pressure on the Spanish, who only had 25,000 men in the Philippines. That whole Cuba business was still taking up most of their resources. But the real struggle was going on between Andres Bonifacio and Emilio Aguinaldo. There are lots of explanations for this conflict. It's one of the big issues of Philippine history and historiography. But one of the big reasons, in my opinion, was what each represented. Andres Bonifacio and the Katipunan leadership had mass popular appeal. They wanted a populist uprising, a people's revolution along with a national one. Many of their recruits were tenant farmers and urban poor. But Aguinaldo and his faction represented the Filipino landowning elite and the Ilustrados. They were afraid of a mass movement. They didn't want to change the Philippine society or economy. They just wanted to get rid of the Spanish. They wanted to create an elite republic with the rich, educated Filipinos on top. Which, to be fair, sounds more than a little like some folks in the American Revolution. But Aguinaldo won the power struggle. He was the better politician, he was a successful commander, and most importantly, he was part of the Filipino elite. On March 22, 1897, the revolution's leadership declared the formation of a Philippine Republic with Aguinaldo as president. Within a few weeks, Aguinaldo had Bonifacio arrested for quote-unquote treason and had him executed on May 10th. This would not be the last time that Aguinaldo spent more energy getting rid of rivals than fighting the enemy. Either way, though, Rizal was dead, Bonifacio was dead, Aguinaldo was the only boy they had. And I mean boy, he was 28 years old. All the leaders of this revolution were remarkably young, in their 20s and early 30s. But by now the Spanish were winning. 
the Philippine Revolution was being snuffed out all over the country, and soon the Spanish cornered Aguinaldo and his troops in Bulacan Province, northeast of Manila. But it would take too many resources to dig him out, resources the broken, decayed Spanish monarchy did not have. So they decided to cut the revolutionaries a deal. On December 14, 1897, Emilio Aguinaldo signed the Pact of Biacnabato. He agreed to disband the revolution in exchange for 800,000 pesos, half on the spot, half later. In exchange, the Spanish agreed to reforms that they never intended to implement. Aguinaldo and many of his followers called a ship for British-ruled Hong Kong with 400,000 pesos and not much else. The Philippine Revolution seemed to be over. You might be thinking, James, Aguinaldo sold them out. And yeah, that's one way to look at it. A lot of folks do see it that way. But Aguinaldo saw himself as trapped in an impossible situation. By taking this deal, he and his comrades could live to fight another day and use that money to finance the revolution. As we'll see, living to fight another day was one of the Filipinos' main strategies in the war against the Americans. And to his credit, Aguinaldo didn't just run off with the cash. He stayed in Hong Kong, buying weapons for the next revolution and declaring his intention to return. Now, Aguinaldo is kind of hard to figure out. Filipino historians are very divided about him. Like, a lot of people, a lot of them really don't like him. And there was that whole thing where he had Bonifacio killed. Yeah, it's pretty darn sketchy. But whatever else he was up to, whatever his personal failures and personal flaws, Aguinaldo was genuinely committed to Philippine independence. He was looking for allies. And he found them. Or so he thought. Because two months after Aguinaldo left the Philippines, the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor. And now we're called up. War between Spain and the United States was clearly imminent. Aguinaldo saw his opportunity. He got in touch with a local U.S. diplomat named E. Spencer Pratt. Like, hey, I hear you guys have a Spanish problem. I can relate. The conversation that followed between the two men, between Aguinaldo and Pratt, has been disputed ever since. According to Aguinaldo, Spencer Pratt promised the United States would support Filipino independence. Pratt said he promised nothing of the kind. They came to some kind of a deal, but nothing was put in writing. That was going to be an issue later. Deal in hand, or at least in mind, Aguinaldo took a fast boat to Hong Kong, hoping to catch a ride on Dewey's fleet. But by the time he got there, the Asiatic squadron had already left for Manila Bay. On April 30th, Commodore George Dewey's seven warships came within sight of the Philippines. Dewey headed for Manila Bay and the Spanish fleet. The dark gray hulls of his steel warships cut through the waters on their way to fire the first shots of the Spanish-American War. Dewey attacked at first light on May 1st, 1898, with the famous order to the captain of his flagship. You may fire when you are ready, Gridley. The Spanish fought well, but they were utterly outmatched. The brand spanking new American vessels, the pride of Alfred Thayer Mann and Theodore Roosevelt, the cutting edge of American empire, devastated their antiquated Spanish opponents. Every single Spanish ship was sunk or so badly damaged it had to be scuttled, and 77 Spanish sailors were killed. Only one American died of a heart attack. Manila Bay is among the most one-sided battles in military history. Over three centuries of Spanish rule in the Philippines had ended. 
Aguinaldo and his revolutionary leaders were ecstatic. God had answered their prayers. America had come to liberate them from the Spanish oppressors. Sure, that lack of a written promise was troublesome, but America would never betray its allies. Everyone knows they're the good guys. The Filipinos believed in the image of an idealistic, heroic, Captain America-style United States. They had in large part based their revolution on the American Revolution. But as we all know, there's the image, then there's the reality. So, it is 1898, the year of the Spanish-American War. So what's going on in the rest of the world? Well, let's see. It is 33 years after the American Civil War, 16 years before World War I. Queen Victoria rules Britain, still. Kaiser Wilhelm II rules Germany. Tsar Nicholas II rules Russia. France is embroiled in the Dreyfus Affair, a massive military and legal scandal. H.G. Wells publishes War of the Worlds, and Georges Méliès is pioneering early black-and-white film techniques. Marie and Pierre Curie discover the element radium. Lots going on. But in America, there was one big story. When Americans remember the Spanish-American War, there is one moment that sticks out. July 1st, 1898. Teddy Roosevelt yelling, Remember the Maine, leading the Rough Riders up San Juan Hill in Cuba. That's the iconic moment, the heroic romantic charge. And I know I've been using Roosevelt as like an exemplar, a stand-in for the average American, but this was a widespread attitude. The Spanish-American War was widely seen as glorious, romantic, heroic, noble, and pure, like if the Hallmark Channel made a war movie. All the stories, even the stories of woundings and deaths, make it sound like a cheesy 50s movies, like like they just throw up their hands and fall over, no blood at all, completely unironically. War is awesome. Heck yeah. That was the image. The reality was that the U.S. Army was woefully unprepared for war and almost screwed the whole pooch. Their invasion of Cuba was a clown show, their logistics were garbage, their generals were old, their training sucked, way more soldiers died from disease than from combat at a ratio of like 10 to 1. It got downright Crimean War in some respects, like bottom two or three American army performances. But they still won, in large part because the Spanish were worse, and because the Navy did have its crap together. A second decisive naval battle at Santiago de Cuba on July 3rd was the twin brother of Manila Bay. Once again, only one American sailor was killed in exchange for totally wrecking the Spanish fleet. This was the decisive battle of the war, which forced the surrender of Spanish forces on Cuba. The United States won every battle of the Spanish-American War. Within 10 weeks, they conquered Cuba and Puerto Rico and crushed the Spanish Navy. Theodore Roosevelt was delighted that American men had proven themselves in war, himself included. He wrote, We had a bully fight at Santiago, and though there was an immense amount that I did not exactly enjoy, the charge itself was great fun. 
I would rather have led that charge and earned my colonelcy than served three terms in the United States Senate. Heck yeah, war is awesome. Teddy had never had so much fun in his life. PTSD? What PTSD? This is awesome! The Spanish-American War had been what Secretary of State John Hay called a splendid little war. But across the Pacific, the groundwork was being laid for a different war. Everyone was so excited about Cuba that barely anyone paid attention to the Philippines. Commodore Dewey's victory at Manila Bay made him an American hero overnight. He had statues. He had songs. He had his face on cigar boxes. People put pictures of him in their houses. I don't even have that many pictures of myself in my house. Dewey was promoted to Rear Admiral and eventually became Admiral of the Navy, equivalent to five-star general, the only one in history. Kind of an overreaction for one of the easiest victories ever. But this was America in its jingo phase, when every victory was big. Hell yeah, America, brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. You get it. Then Dewey asked his bosses in Washington, yeah, hey, so, uh, what do I do now? And the McKinley administration had no idea. Dewey had been sent to the Philippines because there was a Spanish fleet that needed sinking. Mission accomplished. But now the Americans had to answer another question. What are our intentions with the Philippines? What are we trying to accomplish here? And here's the thing, guys. McKinley and his administration had not thought that far ahead. They knew nothing about the Philippines. McKinley openly said that he couldn't find them on a globe. He didn't know where they were. The United States had no plans whatsoever for the Philippines once they had defeated the Spanish fleet. And the Spanish army still occupied the islands, holding multiple strong points, including Manila itself. So when Dewey said, hey boss, what do we do now? McKinley's response was basically, uh, I, I guess we'll send you some soldiers to fight the Spanish army, I guess. And I don't think McKinley realized what he was getting into. I don't think he realized the implications, what he was setting into motion. This decision probably deserved more thought than it was given. What was the goal? What was the objective? America was sending an army overseas for the first time in its history to do what? And McKinley wouldn't have an answer for a long time. Until then, the policy was that there was no policy. The commander of the invasion force was Major General Wesley Merritt, 61 years old, a Civil War veteran and cavalry commander who had witnessed Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Merritt's force formed up in San Francisco, training, drilling, finding transports and supplies for his troops to cross the Pacific. Again, this deserved much more attention than it got or gets today. The United States was about to deploy an army overseas for the first time in its history. So who were these guys? I'm going to talk in much more detail about the U.S. Army in the Philippine War next week. My purpose in this episode is to show how and why the war began, but I will have a short round out next week about this army called Uncle Sam's Imperial Army. Look out for that. But long story short, a few of these guys were U.S. Army regulars, the regular army, the long service troops, like the 14th and 18th U.S. Infantry. The 18th, one of the first U.S. Army units to be sent overseas, was one of my units when I was stationed at Fort Riley. I went overseas with the 18th Infantry. And now it was on the spearhead of American Empire. 
But most of these units were newly raised state volunteer forces, dudes who had never served in the military until a couple of weeks ago. That's why most of the units had names like the 1st California, 20th Kansas, 1st Wyoming. The 1st Nebraska Volunteers under Colonel John Stotzenberg would become famous. One of its soldiers would fire the first shots of the Philippine-American War. My point is that most of these guys were brand new soldiers, raw recruits. But until they arrived, the task of handling the Spanish army would be left to the Filipinos. On May 19th, Emilio Aguinaldo arrived in Manila Bay and spoke with Admiral Dewey. Once again, this conversation is very he said, she said. Aguinaldo said Dewey promised Philippine independence. Dewey said, no, I didn't. This would be a recurring theme. Aguinaldo was never able to get a straight answer from anyone about America's policy in the Philippines. Because there was no policy. They're like, hey, he's like, hey, what are you guys doing here? They're like, oh, you know, just America stuff. The Americans were trying to get Aguinaldo and the Filipinos to help them against the Spanish, but they were also trying not to make promises they couldn't keep. A lot of what Aguinaldo said the Americans promised may have been him hearing what he wanted to hear, and the Americans choosing their words very carefully. For instance, when Aguinaldo asked Dewey if America intended to annex the Philippines, Dewey told him that the United States was a rich country with lots of land and lots of money. We don't need any colonies. That's not, a, that's not, that's not an answer, right? <laughs> an American general would later reassure Aguinaldo that, In 122 years, we have established no colonies. I leave you to draw your own inference. Again, none of this was a straight answer. Every America assured him that of course America wouldn't annex the Philippines. That wasn't what America did. America isn't an empire. Never has been. You have nothing to worry about. And very naively, Aguinaldo believed them. Lots of other Filipinos got frustrated with their leader for accepting American half-promises and failing to get anything in writing. Always good advice. Unwritten promises aren't worth the paper they aren't printed on. Get it in writing. But Aguinaldo was like, we can trust the Americans. America wouldn't betray their allies. They're the good guys. Even if Dewey gave Aguinaldo no promises, he did give him a hundred rifles and helped him buy more. So when Aguinaldo returned to his revolutionary comrades, many of whom felt some kind of way about him bugging out, and they're like, well, look who came crawling back. Aguinaldo said, yeah, and I brought guns. Within a matter of days, the Philippine Revolution had risen from the ashes stronger than ever, with Emilio Aguinaldo at its head once again. So even before American troops arrived, Aguinaldo and his Army of Liberation secured most of the main island of Luzon, and uprisings broke out all over the rest of the islands too, on Pane and Cebu and Leyte and Mindanao, you name it. A lot of these uprisings had nothing to do with Aguinaldo's organization. They were local elites or factions acting on their own initiative. Diversity is natural. Throughout the summer of 1898, Filipino insurgents overthrew their local Spanish officials and laid siege to their fortresses. And with Spain having lost control of the sea, the Filipinos picked off the isolated garrisons one by one. On June 12, 1898, Emilio Aguinaldo declared the Philippines independent, with himself as temporary president until elections could be held. Optimistically, the Philippine Declaration of Independence contained a reference to the protection of the powerful and humanitarian nation, the United States of America. 
The Philippine flag and the Philippine national anthem were debuted at this declaration and both of them are still used today. Aguinaldo's proclamation explained the meaning of the Philippine Republic's flag design. The colors of blue, red, and white commemorating the flag of the United States of North America as a manifestation of our profound gratitude towards this great nation for its disinterested protection which it lends us and continues to lend us. Look, America, our flag is red, white, and blue like yours because you helped us so much and we want to be an independent republic just like you. Yeah. Yeah. Top 10 anime betrayals coming up. But seriously, the Filipinos believed that America had come to help them achieve their independence. They believed in the image America projected as this democratic, anti-imperialist force for good. This Captain America, freedom-loving, Uncle Sam bald eagle image. But Aguinaldo and the Filipinos were about to meet reality. America will be your ally until it's inconvenient. Aguinaldo's new republic was going to be an elite republic. The voting system was indirect and only landowners could vote. You know, the elite, not the masses. And almost all the Philippine Republic's leaders, the economic elites, the local leaders, and the Ilustrados were Tagalog or mixed-race Chinese. They were part of that ethnic group, only 25% of the country, that had always had the most political and economic power. So Aguinaldo's government wasn't just built on a class hierarchy, but also an ethnic hierarchy. This would be one of the main reasons the Filipinos would lose the upcoming war. They were trying to impose an artificial uniformity on a natural diversity, and they failed. Aguinaldo soon found two lieutenants who will be prominent in this story. First was Apolinario Mabini. Mabini was disabled. His legs had been crippled by polio and he used a wheelchair, but he had a sharp brain and an iron will. He was like the Thomas Jefferson of the revolution, the big thinker, the writer and philosopher. Mabini was a lower class illustrado, a radical who believed in a social as well as a political revolution, more in the style of the French rather than the American Revolution, which made him very unpopular with a lot of the other illustrados and rich landowners. Aguinaldo's other lieutenant was Antonio Luna. Luna was a fierce revolutionary with a big bristling black mustache, a hothead and a rageaholic, kind of toxic to be honest. But he was also the closest thing the Filipinos had to a professional soldier. He had studied military science in Europe. So Luna became commander-in-chief of the Filipino Army of Liberation. There was one thing that made folks uneasy besides his volcanic temper. General Luna was not a Tagalog. He was an Ilocano, a member of a minority group from northern Luzon. This would work against him in the future. Either way, by July 1898, Luna's 15,000-man Army of Liberation formed a ring around the Spanish in Manila. The Filipinos were still pretty badly armed. Half of them didn't even have rifles. They were carrying bolos or even spears. They were enthusiastic and motivated, but they weren't going to take the city by storm. Their hope was that by isolating Manila by land as Dewey's warships isolated it by sea, they could starve the Spanish out. It might have worked, but they would never find out. Because the U.S. Army had arrived. The first of General Merritt's units left San Francisco on May 25, 1898. The voyage was miserable, cramped, and nasty, with many soldiers getting sick along the way. 
This would be a voyage that at least over 100,000 American soldiers would make in the oncoming years of the Philippine-American War. They stopped at Honolulu and the Hawaiian Islands, which were about to be annexed by the United States, then went on to Guam, a Spanish possession. An American warship approached Guam and fired a few shots at one of the forts, only for the Spanish governor to come out in a rowboat and say, I'm sorry, I can't return your courteous salute because we don't have any cannons. Sorry. He hadn't even known the two countries were at war. The Americans occupied Guam before continuing west to the Philippines. No one realized it yet, but Guam had become the first overseas province of the American Empire. The rest of General Merritt's forces arrived by late July 1898. By now, the Spanish-American War was almost over. The Cuban campaign was won, American forces were securing Puerto Rico, and the capture of Guam meant that almost every province of the Spanish Overseas Empire was now under American occupation. All except one. 10,000 American troops had waded ashore in the Philippines, setting up camp a few miles south of Manila. The first U.S. Army soldiers to be deployed overseas in American history. The Yankees felt like they'd entered another world. It was monsoon season, with torrential downpours soaking them to the bone, and as soon as the rain stopped and the sun came out, the hot tropical climate drenched them in sweat. The land was smelly, steamy, and swampy. The wildlife was insane, mosquitoes by the billions, freakishly large centipedes and spiders, howling monkeys and screeching parrots. The Americans weren't quite sure what to make of the Filipinos. Their way of life was completely foreign, with their bamboo and palmwood houses on stilts above flood level, chickens and pigs running around, garbage and excrement everywhere, lots of nakedness. There's a lot of, there's a lot of real sense of American shock and something like disgust at how the Filipinos lived on an average level. Lots of Filipinos, especially rural ones, just relieved themselves in the street and walked around nearly naked, shocking the American farm boys from Nebraska and California and Tennessee. And lots and lots of these soldiers were extremely racist. Many of them gained instant hatred and disgust for the Filipinos, who they started calling goo-goos or gooks, or another word, a very famous American racial epithet, which I will not repeat on this podcast. Yeah, Many Americans casually referred to the Filipinos as the N-word. I know it's just a word, but I'm not going to say it because I'm not going to be the podcaster that says the N-word all the time. I'm not Quentin Tarantino, so you know exactly what I mean. I'm going to just say, call it the N-word, all right? Let's move on. <laughs> One American soldier described the Filipino insurgents. The insurgent is a very poor-appearing soldier. They go about the very narrow and dirty streets at will with their arms. Saw Mauser and Remington rifles and large knives of any design, probably waiting to be called for duty. No system seems to be established among them. Nearly all the natives go without shoes, and their clothing is scant and a very lightweight material. And the Filipinos weren't quite sure what to make of the Americans. They were friendly at first, selling the Americans fruits and vegetables and greeting them with phrases like, you know, Americano, Filipino, amigos, Espanol, malo. They were happy to see the Yankees, but the Americans' racist behavior and poor discipline, especially when they started harassing Filipino women, turned many of them sour, and they were becoming suspicious. They were like, what are you guys doing here exactly? What, what's your end game? A lot of the Filipino leadership was suspicious too. 
Aguinaldo tried to calm his people down, like, guys, I'm not worried. You shouldn't be worried. The Americans are here to help. They're our allies. But most of his subordinates didn't trust the new arrivals, and this situation would not improve. Because General Merritt had a mission from President McKinley. Capture Manila without getting the Filipinos involved. That's just going to be complicated and messy. We just, we just prefer that you capture the city and don't involve Aguinaldo's government in any way, shape, or form. But that was easier said than done. Manila was still encircled by General Luna's Philippine Army of Liberation. So Merritt had to solve this dilemma. How do I make sure that American forces take the city when the Filipinos surround the city? Step 1. Merritt persuaded the Filipinos to give up a portion of their line to the newly arrived Americans. Aguinaldo naively allowed the Americans to do just this under protest from his subordinates. One of them, Mariano Noriel, was nearly in tears. Noriel said, Look at what they are doing. If we're not careful, they will soon be replacing their flags with ours all over the country. Aguinaldo replied sharply, You are being tragic. They are our allies. Always remember that. Step two of Merritt's plan was to negotiate with the enemy. The Spanish commander in Manila was prepared to surrender, but he wanted to surrender to the Americans because that wouldn't look as bad, and he wanted to do it a certain way. Like, I can't just surrender. I have Spain's honor to think about. But if you were to attack one night and we fight you just a little bit and then we surrender, that would be ideal. Dewey and Merritt were both like, yeah, that sounds perfect. Let's do that. This is a really weird arrangement. The Americans and Spanish were agreeing to stage a mock battle so that the Americans could occupy Manila without Filipino involvement. And this is kind of crummy if you think about it, basically cutting the Filipinos out of their own capital city, the victory they had fought revolution for years to achieve. Hypothetically, the comparison I'd make is to, let's, let's imagine the American Revolution. Imagine the French come to help the Americans. Americans are like, hooray. Then the British and the French make a deal behind the Americans' back to occupy New York City. And the Americans start to get the feeling that the French aren't leaving. On August 13th, 1898, General Merritt's troops mounted their, um, air quotes, assault on the Spanish lines around Manila, with Admiral Dewey's ships lending fire support. And leading this assault is a guy I need to introduce. He's going to be one of the most important characters in this story. We will have a lot more to say about him in the next few parts of this series. This is the most important American general of the Philippine War. This is Arthur MacArthur Jr. General MacArthur? Yeah. This is Douglas MacArthur's dad. During the American Civil War, Colonel MacArthur had been the youngest regimental commander, 18 years old, in the Union Army. He led the 24th Wisconsin in a dramatic charge in the Battle of Chattanooga up Missionary Ridge, an act that gained him the Congressional Medal of Honor. The kind of story that Teddy Roosevelt would have loved, because war is glorious. And now, 35 years later, Brigadier General Arthur MacArthur Jr. led his brigade against the Spanish lines south of Manila. It was supposed to be a mock battle. Unfortunately, some Spanish units didn't get the memo and opened fire. <laughs> the Americans stormed forward, pushing through rifle fire against the Spanish positions, shooting back and taking losses. MacArthur was up front, sword in hand. There actually was a little bit of decent fighting, but in a matter of hours, it was over. 
The Americans suffered 19 killed and 103 wounded in the quote-unquote Battle of Manila, many of them the result of friendly fire from some of Dewey's warships. But either way, the Spanish barely put up any fight, most of them played their roles well. The American forces advanced into Manila and accepted the Spanish surrender. It had been a walkover, and it was supposed to be. The last battle of the Spanish-American War was not much of a battle. Honestly, a live-fire political theater seems to be a better term. When the Filipinos tried to enter the city, though, American soldiers blocked their path. General Merritt sent the Filipinos a warning not to enter Manila, and the Americans stepped right into the evacuated Spanish positions. Aguinaldo and the Philippine leadership were outraged at Merritt's duplicity. From their perspective, they had been betrayed, stabbed in the back, and it's kind of hard to argue with that. The age of Filipino-American cooperation and friendship was over. Only a few days later, Dewey and Merritt received word that the United States had signed a ceasefire with Spain. The Spanish-American War was over. America had triumphed. United States forces now held Cuba, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the capital of the Philippines, though notably, not the rest of the Philippines. They only held Manila. Merritt's army held a perimeter outside that city, confronting a very angry Philippine revolution that had seen their rosy image of the Stars and Stripes permanently stained. The Filipinos were about to learn a very sad lesson that too many people have learned throughout history, a matter of image versus reality. We love our allies until they're not convenient anymore. As Henry Kissinger once said, it may be dangerous to be America's enemy, but to be America's friend is often fatal. Before 1898, the United States was not a world power. It was not part of the club. Countries like Britain, France, Germany, Russia, those were powers. They saw the USA as a regional power, almost on par with, like, Belgium or Italy. The army was small, the navy was weak, a lot of economic potential, big population, but not a military power. And then the Spanish-American War happened. The United States, this mid-rank, no-name country, had pimp-slapped a European empire, and it shocked everyone. The USA was playing with the big boys now. It had graduated. America had become a world power. And Americans knew it. If patriotism had been amped up before the war, glorious victory sent it into the stratosphere. American flags were everywhere. Military parades and brass bands and John Philip Sousa marches and cheering crowds flooded American streets from San Francisco to Boston. The support the troops mentality was off the chain. All these Spanish-American War veterans going to go to Applebee's and get that 10% discount. At no other time in American history was there such blatant, unironic nationalism. I'm dead serious. No other time. And in this post-victory euphoria, Americans were willing to consider ideas that they wouldn't have considered before. 
This was the very, very brief period when Americans saw imperialism as a positive thing, as an outright good. See, America was one of the big boys now, and all the other big boys had empires, had foreign possessions that were subordinate to the mother country, and now the United States had the opportunity to join the club, to become an empire. But this went against the American image. America is not supposed to be an empire. America is supposed to fight empires. Think of our history. Think of the cornerstone of the founding of America. Freedom fighters versus an empire. All of our popular media has evil empires. Think of Star Wars, rebels fighting against an empire. And even if we had pushed the Indians off their land, in American eyes that wasn't quite the same as ruling overseas colonies. Maybe you don't think it was different, but they thought it was different. But now, empire was a real possibility. Imperialism is, in short, the concept of extending military and economic power abroad by force, or the threat of force. This word has been stretched and contorted into all sorts of weird things, like anything remotely foreign in another country it isn't liked can be seen as imperialism. But imperialism is when that military economic power is expanded by force or the threat of force, not just when it happens. The late 19th century is often called the age of imperialism, the age when any country that was n wasn't white or was the wrong shade of white was pretty much fair game for European conquest. Britain, France, Russia, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Portugal, everyone had colonies, everyone had overseas possessions. But America's not supposed to be like all those other countries. We're not we're supposed to be different. We have the shining romantic superhero image. But all the cool kids were doing empire. Think of it like one of those ads, those old say no to drug ads that was peer pressure. Come on, America. You want to be cool like us, don't you? Try some imperialism. We're all doing it. Just try a little. Just try one Pacific island, a little Hawaii, a little Guam. Oh, you're looking at the Philippines. Uh, that's a harder drug. That's Asia. I don't know if you're ready for that. Now, imperialism is often linked to capitalism and resources, you know, like gold or oil or sugar. And a lot of times this was true. A lot of times big business interests did push for imperialism, including later in American history. See, the Banana Wars. Karl Marx especially thought imperialism was a product of capitalism. Sometimes, but not necessarily. Especially in this period, lots of colonies weren't even profitable. The countries would invent economic reasons for conquering after the conquest was already over. And it was cool to have colonies. Any self-respecting great power had to have a few, and Americans, intoxicated with victory, wanted the respect of a great power. So maybe mm, it wouldn't be so bad to have a little empire. And this started even before the Spanish-American War ended. Back in the early 1890s, there had been a proposition to annex Hawaii, but Americans had turned it down. Not anymore. We got the empire bug. In July 1898, the U.S. Senate passed a bill annexing the Hawaiian Islands. Queen Lily Okani had been overthrown by American business interests previously, but the U.S. had held off on annexation until the Spanish-American War sent that patriotism into overdrive. Now overseas expansion was all the rage. It was the hot new thing. And at the end of the war with Spain, Americans realized that a much bigger empire was on the menu. But not Cuba. 
When America declared war on Spain, Congress passed the Teller Amendment, which stated that the United States would not seek to annex Cuba. We're not fighting this war to take over Cuba. Sounds good. Oh, but we would occupy it for several years with our military and then basically run it as a puppet until the 1950s, but not formally annexed. That's better, right? And America was like, yeah, we'll take Hawaii, little empire. Puerto Rico, that's right next door. That's not that bad. Uh, Guam, small island, pretty handy base. Uh, those are reasonable acquisitions. This is typical. Then there were the Philippines. Like I've said, America knew nothing about the Philippines. There wasn't like some big lobby of capitalists or military leaders or warmongers stroking their beards and going, hmm, the Philippines. We must have the Philippines. No, they basically fell into America's lap by accident. Puerto Rico and Guam and Hawaii, those made rational sense from a strategic standpoint. But the Philippines really had, did not have that much to offer the United States. Even Mann was skeptical about their use as a naval base. Alfred Thayer Mann, the great naval strategist, he was like, the Philippines are kind of vulnerable, guys. They're pretty exposed to attack. I mean, they can be kind of useful, but that's not the best option. What to do with the Philippines? There were four options. One, two, three, four. Number one, give them back to Spain. Just hand them back over. But after making the Spanish out to be these terrible villains in Cuba, the American people would never accept this. Giving the islands back was not on the table. Number two, give the islands to someone else. The most interested buyer was Germany. And this was concerning. Ever since the Battle of Manila Bay, the German East Asia Squadron, remember them, had been sniffing around the Philippines. On board one of those ships was a young naval officer named Maximilian von Spee. But the Germans were curious, like, hey America, you gonna eat that? Because if you're not gonna eat it, we want it. Germany was another up-and-coming world power looking for colonies, and Americans saw them as a rival. Even if America didn't want the Philippines, they didn't want Germany to have them. Number three, give the Filipinos their independence. Hand the islands over to Aguinaldo and his government. That was an option. The Philippines could be an American protectorate, and Aguinaldo proposed something like this. Like, hey America, we know we'll be vulnerable without your protection. You've helped us out. Treat us like Cuba. We'll be your protectorate. We'll be independent, but you can use our bases. We'll have a good trade deal. Everybody wins. But then there was possibility number four. The United States annexes the Philippines. We will get to why America would do this. But the temptation was there to just take them. Annex them. Rule them. Become the American Empire. So as the United States and Spain started peace negotiations in late 1898, Americans began to debate in public what to do with the Philippines. And this debate is really important. It explains why the United States found itself in the Philippines. And American public opinion would play a major role in the Philippine-American War. We'll constantly be going back to the United States to look at the politics because that it shapes the war. Just like Vietnam or the Iraq War. How Americans saw the war at home would play a major role in how it was waged abroad. On the one hand, there were the anti-imperialists in this debate. They formed an organization called the Anti-Imperialist League. These are the guys that want us to not take the Philippines. And this was a weird bunch of folks. Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, racists and anti-racists. 
Very strange bedfellows. Andrew Carnegie, the industrial capitalist, was a member. But so was Samuel Gompers, the famous labor leader. There were American liberals and intellectuals, college professor types like William Dean Howells and Henry Adams. Former presidents Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, a Democrat and a Republican. Jane Addams, the suffragette and social worker, though she wasn't allowed to have a leadership role because, girl, you. The most famous member of the Anti-Imperialist League would eventually be Mark Twain, but he wouldn't join the League until later. We'll hear from him later in this series. The Anti-Imperialists failed to recruit William Jennings Bryan, the 1896 Democratic presidential candidate, who stayed quiet. Bryan was anti-imperialist, but he wanted to save the issue for the election of 1900. That is a foreshadowing for part three of this series when that election finally hits and Bryan is the candidate. The anti-imperialists appealed to the American image. They quoted Washington's farewell address, where he advised the United States to avoid foreign entanglements. They compared the struggle for Filipino freedom to the struggle against slavery, comparing Aguinaldo to John Brown. Republican Senator George Hoare of Massachusetts was the chief anti-imperialist voice in the Senate. He warned of... The danger that we are to be transformed from a republic founded on the Declaration of Independence into a vulgar, commonplace empire founded upon physical force controlling subject races and vassal states in which one class must forever rule and other classes must forever obey. Some anti-imperialists said annexation would drain the American economy. Some thought it was a bad strategic move. Some thought that American soldiers didn't need to die for a bunch of islands. There were also racial reasons. Senator Ben Tillman of South Carolina, a white supremacist, segregationist, and top contender for the Racism Olympics, said that annexing the Philippines would bring in too many brown people. I don't want more colored people in America. We already have enough. The other anti-imperialists were like, oof, you're on our side? Why don't you just sit in the back where nobody can see you? Except for the psycho-racists, that was the anti-imperialist message. Not only will this be bad for America, it goes against American values, American ideals. It goes against our image. And their opponents, the imperialists, had to contend with this image. They had to square the reality of empire with the image of America as the good guys, as pro-democracy, as modern and progressive. The most prominent imperialists were three Republican politicians. Senator Albert Beveridge of Indiana, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, and New York Governor Theodore Roosevelt. Henry Cabot Lodge spent a lot of time explaining all the benefits the Philippines would bring, that they would be a valuable market for American domestic goods, a great trade port with China, that it would be a valuable naval base, etc., blah blah blah. Now, all this was really dubious. Lodge was bending over backwards to find tangible benefits. None of these real reasons, economic, military, strategic, none of these were really good enough to annex the Philippines. They weren't the real reasons for empire. Teddy Roosevelt had other rationalizations. He had returned from his glorious victories in Cuba to run for governor of New York. The debate over the Philippines overshadowed the governor's race, and in one of his speeches, Teddy Roosevelt spelled out the feeling that had overtaken most of America. The guns of our warships have awakened us to new duties. Our flag is a proud flag, and it stands for liberty and civilization. Where it has once floated, there must and shall be 
no return to tyranny or savagery. We are face to face with our destiny, and we must meet it with a high and resolute courage. Let us rather run the risk of wearing out than rusting out. Teddy, as did a lot of Americans, saw the world in terms of challenges, of manhood, of honor and prestige. Empire was a test, and Americans didn't back down from a fight. To not accept that challenge was weak. It was cowardly. There was this gendered context where American manhood was on the line, that pacifism was weak and flabby and feminine, as opposed to the energetic, muscular, masculine ideals of empire. Roosevelt embodied this masculine idea and expostulated it to the masses. And then there was race. And we need to talk about race. Everyone in this time period was some degree of racist. You might say, James, yeah, sure, everyone's a little bit racist. Oh no, you don't get it. Take the average Joe or Jane from the 1890s, bring them to the present day. They will be ludicrously, outrageously racist. Racism that would make your hair stand on end. Beliefs that we find abhorrent and disgusting were not just common, they were normalized. Now, you have, you'd have to grade people on a curve. If everybody was racist, not everyone was the same racist. You have the shockingly open racism of the Jim Crow South, people like Ben Tillman of South Carolina. Many progressives and Republicans, like Theodore Roosevelt, saw Jim Crow and lynching as evil and abomination, rampant bigotry. But the progressives were also racist, but in a different way. They saw black and brown and Asian people not as inherently inferior, but just people at a different level of development. They needed to be uplifted, civilized. They talked about the Anglo-Saxon race not as a master race necessarily, but as a force for civilization and progress, a force for good, that American imperialism would be beneficial. And that was how these progressives, these reformers, people who have these ideas that we see as good and far-sighted and positive to American history, were also racist and also imperialist. Teddy Roosevelt would do many things in his career that make him very admirable, one of the great presidents. He remains very likable. I like the guy. There's a lot to recommend him. But he had this racialized view of civilization and progress where white people needed to teach other peoples, brown people like the Filipinos, how to be civilized. That was how the imperialists squared the reality of empire with the image of a good guy America, by portraying it as righteous and noble and necessary. Albert Beveridge, a young Indiana senator, gave the reasoning for this line of thinking. And to modern ears, this sounds insane. God has not been preparing the English-speaking and Teutonic peoples for a thousand years for nothing but vain and idle self-contemplation and self-admiration. No, he has made us the master organizers of the world to establish system where chaos reigns. He has given us the spirit of progress to overwhelm the forces of reaction throughout the earth. He has made us adepts in government, that we may administer government among savage and senile peoples. Were it not for such a force as this, the world would relapse into barbarism and night. He has marked the American people as his chosen nation to finally lead in the regeneration of the world. This is the divine mission of America. You hear that? Progress, system, civilization against barbarism. That fit with the progressive ideal. The idea of good government, good policies, progressive reform that would make people better, including the Filipinos. But only we can give them that good government. 
the most convincing voice for this racial obligation wasn't American at all. He was Rudyard Kipling, the great British poet and novelist, the PR guy for the British Empire. In December 1898, Kipling wrote a poem specifically addressed to the United States, a poem that you've probably heard of, but may not have connected with this historical event. Kipling's poem was The White Man's Burden, subtitled The United States and the Philippine Islands. This is part of it. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile, to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness, on fluttered folk and wild. Your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace. Fill full the mouth of famine, and bid the sickness cease. And when your goal is nearest, the end for others sought. Watch sloth and heathen folly bring all your hopes to naught. Kipling here is like, this is what adult countries do, America. You're a big boy now, and that comes with responsibilities. These black and brown people, half devil and half child, aren't ready to govern themselves. It's your job to get them there. It is your duty to imperialize, colonize, raise these people up. Your new subjects won't be grateful. They'll hate you. They'll despise you. You'll have to fight the savage wars of peace, as he called them. But this is the white man's burden. This is your cross to bear. What I'm getting across is that the imperialists weren't mustache-twirling villains. It's hard to sympathize with this self-pitying white man's burden idea, but they really believed it. The Philippines would not benefit America. There wasn't an objectively good justification to annex them, even from like a strategy game mindset. Americans had to lie to themselves to justify their hypocrisy, jump through all these logical hoops to convince themselves that the reality of empire matched the image of the good America. American racial beliefs, the need for a new frontier, a belief in this American dream and image that were fading away, led the United States to empire. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The imperialists won the debate. The American public overwhelmingly supported annexing the Philippines. The last holdout was once again William McKinley himself. Here is how the president explained his decision later. The truth is, I didn't want the Philippines, and when they came to us as a gift from the gods, I did not know what to do with them. And one night late, it came to me this way, that we could not give them back to Spain, that would be cowardly and dishonorable, that we could not turn them over to France or Germany, that would be bad business and discreditable, that we could not leave them to themselves, they were unfit for self-government, and they would soon have anarchy and misrule over there worse than Spain's was, and there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all, and to educate the Filipinos, and uplift and civilize and Christianize them, and by God's grace do the very best we could by them, as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. Yep, gonna Christianize the very Catholic Philippines. Either McKinley's ignorance about the islands or good old American anti-Catholic bias was telling. Lots of American Protestants did not regard Catholicism as real Christianity, and some still don't. But this shows how even an unwarlike, almost pacifist president could come around to American empire. The Filipinos, to put it mildly, disagreed. 
While this entire debate was going on, the standoff continued outside Manila. General Merritt had gone home, and the U.S. Army's 8th Corps was now under General Elwell S. Otis. Much more on him in a couple of weeks. The two armies dug trenches and built earthworks and glared at each other. The trust between the former allies had been broken during the Battle of Manila. Tensions grew. There were incidents, small confrontations between individuals or small groups of soldiers. General Otis kept pushing the Filipinos, almost daring them to do something, making this demand and that demand. And Aguinaldo gave in to pretty much all the American demands, despite the outrage of his lieutenants. He was trying to avoid any move towards open conflict. Apolinario Mabini, his radical partner in government, was furious at Aguinaldo's dithering. Mabini said, The conflict is coming sooner or later, and we shall gain nothing by asking favors of them what are really our rights. Aguinaldo was also working the diplomatic circuit. American and Spanish peace commissioners had met in Paris to hammer out the treaty that would officially end the Spanish-American War, and Aguinaldo sent a representative. Felipe Agoncillo, a lawyer and skilled negotiator, came to make his case for Filipino independence. But Agoncillo had been ignored in America, and he was ignored in Paris. He wasn't even allowed into the meetings. On December 10, 1898, the United States and Spain signed the Treaty of Paris. America's victory was total. Cuba would be independent. The United States would annex Puerto Rico, some other Caribbean islands, and Guam, and purchase the Philippines for $20 million. McKinley was pleased, but he wasn't sure he could get the treaty through the Senate. The ratification vote was scheduled for early February 1899. In the meantime, McKinley put out standing orders to his commanders in the Philippines. He did not want an open conflict. He hoped that the Filipinos could be persuaded to lay down their arms and accept the annexation. To move this along, McKinley made a famous proclamation on December 21, 1898, the Benevolent Assimilation Proclamation. It should be the earnest wish and paramount aim of the military administration to win the confidence, respect, and affection of the inhabitants of the Philippines by proving to them that the mission of the United States is one of benevolent assimilation, substituting the mild sway of justice and right for arbitrary rule. Benevolent assimilation. Nice imperialism. You are being liberated. Please do not resist. This was meant to contrast American imperialism with supposedly crueler, more heartless European imperialism. Yeah, America's doing imperialism, but we still have this image. We're not like those mean old Europeans, not like the Spaniards. We're the good guys. McKinley's instructions to General Otis were... Do not initiate hostilities with the Filipinos. Persuade the Filipinos to accept benevolent assimilation. But the news hit the Filipinos like a thunderbolt. It was a devastating blow. The revolutionaries had believed in the American image, and now it had been ruined beyond all repair. They saw the revolution they had fought for being sold down the river. They were stabbed in their back by their allies. But they would not go down without a fight. In January 1899, Aguinaldo made a defiant statement rejecting benevolent assimilation. I hoped that once the Paris Conference was at an end, my people would obtain the independence promised them, but it did not turn out thus. My government is ready to open hostilities. Upon their heads be all the blood which may be shed. 
But despite these words, the stalemate continued around Manila. Every nerve was tight. Every trigger finger was tense. One soldier wrote in December 1898, I believe it only a matter of time when there will be a clash, for the two armies' outposts are within a mile or two of each other, and a single shot from either side would precipitate a general engagement. General Otis's army patrolled the front lines and watched the opposite side. There were fights, altercations, even actual shooting between outposts sometimes, but this always died down before it got really serious. Everyone knew a fight was coming, but no one wanted to be the one to start it. Both sides waited, and waited, and waited. Back in Washington, D.C., the Senate debate began, and everyone argued over the Philippines. Theodore Roosevelt was watching, hoping that his country would take up the challenge and prove its fitness as a great power. The anti-imperialists were watching, hoping America would do the right thing. Henry Cabot Lodge and Albert Beveridge proclaimed the benefits of empire. George Hoare called it immoral. Ben Tillman screeched about all the brown people. And the anti-imperialists looked at him like, how do we have the most racist guy here? Backroom deals were made. Favors granted. Government positions promised. It became clear that the treaty would pass the Senate. The night before the Senate vote on February 5th, McKinley received a dispatch from the Philippines. The president read it several times, then laid it aside sadly. Fighting, serious fighting, had broken out around Manila. Whatever happened in the Senate the next day, America's imperial war had begun. On February 6th, the United States Senate ratified the Treaty of Paris, officially annexing Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. The United States had taken up the white man's burden. America had succumbed to the siren song of empire. It was the evening of February 4th, 1899. Private William Walter Grayson of the 1st Nebraska, 23 years old, saw a group of Filipino soldiers approaching his patrol outside Manila. When he gave the order to halt and the Filipinos kept coming, Grayson raised his rifle and pulled the trigger. Within minutes, firing broke out all along the line, and soon artillery had joined in. The confrontation that had simmered for months had finally boiled over. The Battle of Manila had begun, and there was no going back now. The Filipinos were not going to accept benevolent assimilation. They were not willing to trade one colonial master for another. The result will be a bloody, horrible conflict that has been almost forgotten entirely in American history. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The Philippine-American War had begun. The story of the Philippine-American War will continue in Episode 38, The Philippine War Part 2, Shock and All. We're going to drop right into the fighting that broke out around Manila and follow the United States and Philippine forces in the campaigns of 1899, culminating in another battle that has been compared to Thermopylae. What are the odds? I know today was a lot of politics and background, not a lot of fighting. We skimmed the battles today, but episode 38 is going to be all battle all the time, so get ready. But before that, next week, I have another short round for you. This is a core part of the series. Think of it as uh, Philippine War Part 1.5.
We need to take a good hard look at the U.S. Army and Marine Corps that fought in the Philippine War. How were they organized and trained? What were their weapons and equipment? What did they eat and drink? And what did they think about all of this? So check out Philippine War Part 1.5, Uncle Sam's Imperial Army, next week. And until then, thanks for listening today. I hope you learned a lot about America, the Philippines, and maybe even Teddy Roosevelt. If you like it, tell your friends. Just don't be a jerk and try to steal their capital city and annex their country. That's frowned upon today. Somebody tell Vladimir Putin. If you don't like it, tell your enemies. If you want to read a little more in the Spanish-American War, I have an article on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. It's the December 10th article from my 365 Days of History. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com, and I will get back to you. Thanks once again for listening. See you next week to meet our boys in blue and khaki, and see you in two weeks for the Philippine War Part 2, Shock and All, right here on Unknown Soldiers.